Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague Kelly Vlahos. Today we are talking with Sina Tusi from the Center for International Policy about U.S.-Iran relations, Iran policy, and other issues in the Middle East. First, let's turn to Kim Jong-un's upcoming visit to Russia, where he is expected to meet with Vladimir Putin and Vladivostok. Uh, the meeting was confirmed on Monday of this week. Uh, Kim left in his uh, armored train, I think, uh, either today or yesterday. And it's the first time since 2019 that Kim will be meeting with Putin in Russia. Uh, one of the few times that Kim has left North Korea uh, in all that time, uh, and, and uh, one, of, one of the few overseas or international visits that he's done uh, since meeting with Trump in uh, Vietnam. Uh, the meeting will likely focus on military cooperation between the two neighbors as Russia seeks more ammunition for the ongoing war in Ukraine, and North Korea will be looking for political and economic support, including energy and food aid. Russia previously announced that it had proposed holding joint naval drills with North Korea and China. That would be the first time that North Korea has been included in such exercises. Closer cooperation between Russia and North Korea can hardly be a surprise to anyone given that both countries are targets of extensive U.S. sanctions. The U.S. is a major supplier of weapons to Ukraine, and the U.S. and its Asian allies have been drawing closer together with pledges of increased cooperation and consultation with North Korea foremost in their minds. The U.S. has been increasing its shows of force in North Korea's vicinity with the dispatch of multiple nuclear-powered submarines, including one nuclear ballistic missile submarine this summer, and North Korea has been reacting with its own missile test launches. As the Quincy Institute's Anatole Levin pointed out, the U.S. successfully leaned on South Korea to provide artillery shells for Ukraine despite their policy not to send weapons to belligerents in an ongoing conflict, so it's predictable that North Korea would start providing military support for Russia as well. Russian military cooperation with North Korea bodes ill for building up international support for limiting North Korea's nuclear arsenal, but that effort has been moribund for at least the last four years and shows no signs of getting back on track anyway. Uh, what do you make of the meeting, Kelly? Uh, have U.S. policies contributed to driving them together? And if so, how might Washington go about driving wedges in between them? Yeah, I completely concur with my colleague Anatole Levin on this. I, I don't think we have a leg to stand on. We have been pressuring all of our partners and allies throughout the last year to send ammunition and supplies to Ukraine because we are running out. So to turn around and say that uh, Putin is um, in a sign of desperation going to Kim Jong-un with hat in hand uh, because he's losing the war, it just it, it, it doesn't bear out. It doesn't bear out at all. And you know, one of the things that we try to do on this show, Crashing the War Party, is to expose the false narratives that are perpetuated in Washington on foreign policy. And they're perpetuated in Washington with the goal of convincing the American people of uh, believing in, in one way or the other, or the, or the positions that Washington have are, are the right positions on, on foreign policy matters. One of the biggest um, indicators of this is is what the mainstream media is saying about any given news event. And I was in the car yesterday listening to the news and what many of these stations will do, whether it be local stations like in Washington, uh, WTOP or Bloomberg Radio, is that they will pipe in national news at the top of the hour. And it's usually little news nuggets that uh, kind of a light on one event or the other uh, for ver for like five to 10 seconds. And they reported on the impending visit of Kim Jong-un to Russia. And the 10 seconds was filled with 
uh, John Kirby, the spokesman for the the Pentagon, was it the Pentagon or the State Department? He's the Pentagon spokesman, I believe. Basically, saying that the fact that Kim Jong Un was visiting Putin in this manner and there would be an expected weapons deal is uh, an indication or it's proof rather that Russia is losing the war in Ukraine and it is desperate. It's desperate for fun, funds, friends, and ammunition. And that was it. That was the 10 seconds. And as Americans who are not well-informed or don't have time to get well-informed in foreign policy because let's, but frankly, you know, we work in it every day, but not everybody has the time and the inclination to spend hours on the internet, you know, educating themselves on every issue. They listen to these 10 seconds and believe me, these 10 seconds are probably the same on, on CNN and CBS and ABC and Fox and every other major news network. And they say, wow, Russia's losing Putin's desperate, you know, let's keep on supporting whatever Biden says in this war. And so it's not a huge surprise that although numbers have shifted in terms of the support for aiding Ukraine indefinitely, they haven't shifted a lot because I think that Americans believe these narratives that are put out by the mainstream media. They believe that Ukraine is winning. They believe that the counteroffensive is working. Um, and that if just given some more sophisticated weapons like attackums, um, they will prevail. And I think that that's a dangerous path we're on because we will all wake up a week, a month, six months from now and realize that Ukraine is in a is in its own desperate situation and it will cost trillions of dollars to get that country back into shape. And are we willing to face that? Are we willing to invest that over long over time? Or should we be directing uh, our or pressuring our government to actually start engaging in diplomatic talks so we can end it sooner than later? Well, and I, I think the, the, the line that's coming out of the administration that this is a sign of Russian desperation is is really, uh, I mean, as, as you're suggesting, it's it's a kind of spin. It's trying to to put what's obviously very objectively bad news for Ukraine in a in a better light by trying to make it seem as if this is proof that Russia is, you know, because it, it doesn't have a lot of allies because it's turning to North Korea that that's somehow... Uh, proves how how bad their situation is when i mean the, the the reality is they're turning to north korea because north korea has a lot of artillery shells and a lot of a lot of, art, a lot of ammunition that russia needs to keep up uh their side of the war uh, and north korea also has extensive production capabilities for producing more of these artillery shells that that both sides are burning through at a rapid clip so if if they can find a reliable supplier like that, even if, I mean, yes, it's North Korea, so everyone sort of laughs at it and says, oh, you know, you're turning to the to the hermit kingdom, you're turning to the pariah for help. Well, the, the pariah is a very well-armed pariah, and it's one that has the ability to provide them with supplies that nobody else is currently able to provide or willing to provide. And so it's it's actually quite useful for the Russians to, to make a deal with North Korea at this point. Um it should, you know, when when your adversary is finding support, no matter 
how disreputable you think the source is, that's not good news for your side. And so I don't, I, you know, I guess it's, it's an attempt to try to make it seem like it's not that big of a deal or that it's, it's proof that they're on the back foot or something, but it's, it's really not credible when they uh, have U.S. officials going out there saying things like this. And I think it, it also shows how our approach to North Korea or, or lack of approach uh, in terms of diplomacy has really ended up backfiring uh, against us in, in multiple ways. Not only do they continue to develop more advanced and sophisticated nuclear weapons and missiles on their own, but now they're establishing partnerships with their two major power neighbors uh, that are much closer than they've been in the past, and that can only help them to resist outside pressure, uh, both on the, the issue of their nuclear arsenal and on other issues. And so we, what we see is the, the fruit of, of confrontational policies across the board undermining U.S. goals in, in, in multiple regions at the same time. Um, if we if we had pursued more engagement with North Korea in previous in, in the years leading up to this, would they be as willing to make deals with Russia? We'll never know. Uh, but fact is, we we haven't really made a serious effort to engage them, uh, and, and and even Trump's efforts at engagement were not as uh, committed and serious as they needed to be. And so that's uh, that's a concern. The the other issue we were going to talk about today, Kelly, uh, while we still have a little bit of time, uh, is the the possible delivery of these long range missiles uh, that you you mentioned, uh, the Army Tactical Missile Systems. Uh, and according to the Financial Times, Biden is getting close to making a decision on this. Uh, U.S. has refrained from delivering these weapons in the past because of concerns over the limited number that our government has and how Russia might respond to their delivery. And that fits with the pattern that the administration has established where it will resist providing Ukraine with a certain system or a platform for a while before eventually relenting under pressure. Hawkish critics insist that escalation fears have been overblown in all these cases and that the U.S. should simply throw more weapons into the mix uh, whenever they're asked for. But I think we, we know those fears are a legitimate concern and the administration was right to take them seriously in the past and it's it doesn't make sense why they're just blowing them off now. Um... The delivery of this or that weapon may not ha provoke a dangerous response, but the flow of increasingly sophisticated weapons may have a cumulative effect and, and may eventually push Russia over, over that edge to take actions that we don't want them to take. Um, so there may come a point where our government assumes that Russia is bluffing about escalation, and it isn't. Uh, so, so what do you think about that dynamic? I mean, it's a it's a dynamic, and I feel like the White House has been very coy about what it is encouraging Ukrainians to do and what it's not. And but they have not been clear that we do not want our weapons, our sophisticated weapons, to be used in um, attacks on Russia on Russian territory. It seemed at the beginning of the war. They were very clear about that. Um, and we have a piece up at Responsible Statecraft on Tuesday by Connor Eccles, who, had, who goes through the timeline. And he talks about in June 2022, when they were considering HIMARS, which are the high mobility artillery rocket systems, 
uh, that have been uh, a huge component of the Ukrainian um, off- offensive um, throughout the war um, have have basically, when they were debating this, the administration has said, we don't have any interest in the conflict in Ukraine widening to a broader conflict or evolving into World War II. So we have to be mindful of that, says Colin Call, uh, administration official to reporters at the time, June 2022. Then they became the essential component for Russian, I mean, Ukrainian offensive actions. This has, that was the start of, of the pattern. Next were the M1 Abrams tanks in which it, in as far back as, or recently as January, 2023, uh, Biden was playing down uh, the potential for them to be transferred to Ukraine. And then we decided to do that. F-16s. Now, has the United States given F-16s yet? No, um, but it's allowing its allies or its partners to send. Um, the Netherlands, I believe, ha- and Sweden, Denmark and the Netherlands have agreed to send F-16s to Ukraine. Now, the attackums. So I feel like there have been a number of red lines and they've been crossed and the White House is now being coy about the, the drone attacks and um, whether or not we are helping with intelligence and targeting information um, on those attacks. But one of the, th- the themes or the threads through all of this reporting has been that the White House is becoming less and less concerned about escalation. But it would seem that each time that we have crossed a red line, that Russian hardliners, Putin's right flank, has been more and more agitated because he isn't responding in kind. Putin and his cabinet have been talking tough about each time that we've crossed the red line, whether it be giving Abrams or F-16 saying this is the last straw, and it never is the last straw. And he's getting a lot of guff from his the hardliners in, in, in Russia right now for not standing up to the United States and retaliating. I think um, that the White House is making a big mistake by taking it for granted that Putin is bluffing because I think he's coming under increasing pressure from that right flank to do something. And at some point, he's going to have to, to prove um, that he's tough enough. Our guest today is Sina Tusi. He's a senior non-resident fellow at the Center for International Policy. He works on U.S.-Iran relations, U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East, and nuclear policy issues. Previously, he was a senior research analyst at the National Iranian American Council. His writing has appeared in Foreign Affairs and Foreign Policy, among other publications. He also writes on Substack at Beyond Borders. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. I've enjoyed your work for a long time, and so I'm glad we finally got you on the show. Um... We we originally wanted to talk to you last month about the the 70th anniversary of the 1953 coup, uh, and we're glad we finally got you on to to talk about it. Um, 
So it's been 70 years since the coup, uh, with the U.S. and U.K. back to the overthrow of uh, Mossadegh uh, and back to the Shah uh, in the, the dictatorship that, uh, that followed over the next 25 years. Um, what are some of the most important lessons that Americans should learn from past U.S. interference in Iranian politics uh, and our government's support for the Shah? Yeah, I think the experience of the 1953 coup is really a lesson on the blowback uh, in a lot of U.S. foreign policy actions. In that when we engage in a lot of these foreign interventions and topple governments and whether it's military intervention or covert intervention, that even though at the time it might seem like a success and it might meet the short term perceived interests of you know, the White House at the time or the U.S. government that over the long term, these things can have very disastrous consequences. And this bore out in Iran. And with the 1953 coup, we saw that there was a democratically elected prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, who was popular, um, who was a nationalist and who came into office at a time when Iran was kind of, I would say, a semi-colonial colonized states. Uh, this was in a post-World War II, immediate post-World War II aftermath where the British and Russians had spheres of influence in Iran. They had actually toppled the father of the Shah, who was the, the king when Mossadegh was prime minister. The former king, his father, was toppled uh, by, an, by an allied invasion of Iran during World War II and because he kind of leaned towards Nazi Germany during World War II. And so this was a period where Iran, you know, it, it, its sovereignty and independence were not uh, that strong. It was heavily under the influence of uh, kind of foreign powers and especially with its oil industry that the British, uh, ever since the discovery of oil in Iran and, um, you know, the Anglo-Saxon or the Anglo-Iranian oil company, that's, which is now known as BP, was, you know, major kind of uh Back then, it was even much bigger of a global uh, oil company as it is today. But um, they had decisive control over Iran's economy, political system, kind of a very imbalanced uh, deal, you know, kind of share of Iran's oil wealth. And ultimately, you know, Iran's oil wealth was in their control. So what Mossad did did was uh, nationalize the Iranian oil industry, which upset the British and also the U.S. government at the time and, you know, laid the groundwork for the coup. Yeah, definitely. And it's, uh, it's a, a sad story of, of our interference and, and the British interference in Iran's uh, internal politics and in, in diverting their political development towards that uh, despotic monarchy that followed. And it's, I think, one of the things that people in the U.S. don't remember or don't, maybe never knew is what a what a positive image of the U.S. Uh, the Iranian people used to have, uh, say even even during World War II, that the, the Americans were perceived as as the non-imperialistic power that that we weren't like the British and the Russians, we were we were something different. And then the the I think the sad thing that happened during the Cold War is that we we proved ourselves to be just as much uh, an imperialistic power as as any of the others, uh, especially in relation with Iran. So today, if you were to do a poll uh, in Iran, uh, attitudes towards the U.S., the the sentiment is overwhelmingly negative, at least towards the government. Uh, 
uh, when the, when the, it didn't used to be the case. And so, you know, even more than, than blowback against U.S. interests, I, I see the, the coup as being really the, the decisive moment when we, we poisoned the well in, in U.S.-Iranian relations, uh, and, and we're still living with it today. Uh, what, what, what would you say about that? Absolutely. You're 100% right. I mean, these things don't occur in a vacuum. Sometimes people might be like, oh, why are the people in the Middle East or in Iran anti-American? Why was the 1979 revolution anti-American? You know, this cliche that, you know, I remember during the Bush era, they hate us for our freedoms. There's something intrinsically about these people that they don't like American kind of uh, culture or society. And that's not true. Like you said, actually, the U.S. and Iran, have, you know, especially the societies that, you know, Deep, you know, connections preceding the coup during the Shah's era, a lot of kind of uh, respect and admiration from Iranians stretching back even to the 1800s for the U.S. But again, our actions, they can have a radicalizing effect on populations when we go in and, you know, topple a government, impose, you know, these very severe economic sanctions that harm ordinary people. Uh, blockade their resources like, you know, what happened with the coup is that there was a blockade on Iran. Uh, where, you know, Iran, the Mossad dead governments, you know, so they would not be able to export oil and to kind of uh, increase the pressure on them. And that led up to the coup. So these things, you know, the blowback that occurred just to kind of circle back on that point was that the Iranian population was radicalized. And with the Shah forced back on power and the 25 years of subsequent uh, dictatorship, like you said, that during this period, you know, that this monarchy became completely enmeshed with U.S. Uh, influence and the popular perception was that, you know, the Shah was the U.S. puppet, that the Shah was, you know, totally dependent on the U.S. for his uh, power and his monarchy, you know, after the coup. And this radicalized a lot of Iranians and, you know, created the environment and the political climate in Iran that led to the 1979 revolution and led to this very anti-government, anti-American government, the Islamic Republic that came to power. And, you know, these all the enmity and kind of hostility that have uh, ensued in the subsequent decades. Right. And uh, there was uh, recently a, a, a small breakthrough, a, a, a slight flaw in U.S.-Iranian relations this year. Uh, it was uh, welcome news. Uh, you, you wrote about the prisoner exchange deal last month uh, as a rare breakthrough in U.S.-Iranian relations. And uh, there's a little bit of news about that develop, that deal this week. Uh, where do things stand with the prisoner exchange deal now? Yeah, it, it is a rare positive development, like you said. Um, basically, you know, the context for this is that the U.S. abandoned the Iranian nuclear deal under Trump in 2018. Trump pursued this maximum pressure campaign of these severe, really unprecedented sanctions against Iran, which are actually very analogous to what happened in the lead up to the 53 coup and the Mossadegh coup, because, you know, Trump, you know, the Trump administration wanted to reduce Iranian oil exports to zero. It was a de facto blockade, you know, trying to prevent any trade with the country, cutting it off from international banking. And so this deal now, after years of escalation, even under the first several years of the Biden administration, where Iran, as a response to the U.S. leaving the nuclear deal, has stopped abiding by the nuclear deal's kind of limitations on its nuclear program. So it's massively expanded its nuclear program. It has much bigger stockpiles of enriched uranium. It has higher um, levels of enrichment. And so basically, Iran is far 
closer and can far more easily develop nuclear weapons if it makes a decision to do so. All that it remains is really just a political decision in Tehran to make, to, you know, weaponize the nuclear program, which has not happened. But the Iranians have built a lot of leverage for themselves. So in this context, the Biden administration, after lots of dangerous escalation that, and the U.S. and Iran really being on the path to war, and I think, you know, that policy of maximum pressure, if left as it is and, and it has been, it would inevitably lead to conflict, in my view. And so Biden has reached the understanding with Iran, uh, which they're calling it a kind of implicit agreement uh, that they're kind of framing as a de-escalatory agreement. And so this kind of involves Iran capping uranium enrichment at 60 percent which you need 90% enriched uranium to build the bomb. So the Iranians have said, we're going to stop at 60%. We're going to slow our accumulation of 60% enriched uranium. So basically, their so-called breakout time, the amount of time they need to kind of acquire enough nuclear material to build the bomb is not going to increase. Uh, and they've also agreed on a prisoner swap. So five uh, detained kind of U.S. citizens in Iran are going to be freed, five Iranians in America are going to be released and $6 billion of Iranian frozen assets. So this is Iranian money. You know, there's a lot of kind of misinformation and disinformation about this, you know, Biden writing, you know, writing a check for Tehran or something. It's not American money. It's Iranian money that, you know, arguably illegally, you know, as per international law has been prevented from going to Iran. And also this money is not going to be able to be used directly by Iran or Iranian won't, won't even have direct access to it. The money is going to Qatar, a close U.S. ally, and Iran is not even going to be able to access the cash. They're basically only going to be able to use the money under the supervision of the U.S. and Qatar to buy humanitarian goods, which are already exempt from U.S. sanctions. Uh, but in practice, that hasn't been working. We can get into that. But that's basically the context of this deal that's that is seemingly in the implementation stage this week. Right. And, and some some good news on the nuclear issue as well. Uh, there was a report uh, came out about IAEA's findings. That's the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, that found that Iran was significantly slowing down its buildup of that 60 percent enriched uranium. Uh, and they had only added uh, seven and a half kilograms in the last three months, ending in August, uh, rather than uh, I think something like fifty kilograms in the six months prior to that. And so there, there was a, a a definite decrease in that uh, buildup uh, that that shows that there is some willingness to be flexible, some some compromise is possible uh, on the nuclear issue even now. Uh, and so, does uh, just say a little bit more about uh, what? why that slowdown matters and, and what the potential is for possibly a, a larger deal on the nuclear issue uh, stemming from that in the future. Yeah. So, you know, this shows that diplomacy works, you know, diplomacy mm -hmm. grounded on mutual concessions, not maximalist demands, not wanting the other side to totally capitulate, totally surrender on all its, you know, national security interests that, this works and it brings, you know, this is how we actually get tangible, long lasting restrictions on like Iran's nuclear program in this case. Like, you know, under Obama, the 2015 deal actually restrained Iranians nuclear program, actually massively downgraded it and 
created the historically unprecedented inspections regimes, like the, in, you know, from the IAEA, like nuclear inspectors. So the Iranians agreed to things that no other country has ever agreed to. And so that is, you know, the success of that model, that diplomatic model. And if we look at the, the maximum pressure model, like, you know, many hawks in Washington love to talk about, you know, we're tough on Iran, our policies are more tough, you know, but tough towards what end? Like, what are they getting? They haven't yet, yeah, the sanctions have harmed the Iranian people, re, you know, caused an immense amount of human suffering, and they've resulted in Iran massively expanding its nuclear program, a lot of instability, and threatening a war that would cost immense amounts more of American treasure, immense amounts more of American blood, you know, destabilize this, this, this uh, region further. So... This is just further evidence that, you know, Trump got nothing with his Iran policy. Biden, through this, through not even giving much of anything, like the the, the $6 billion is money that is Iran's, that America is supposed to be, you know, there are supposed to be humanitarian exemptions that have not been in effect. And now the U.S. is taking steps to fix that. Um, so, I yeah, with the nuclear front, um, but, it, you know, this is a first step. This is a first step, and it's a m relatively minor step. So my hope is, as someone who supports diplomacy, that this will lead to broader diplomatic efforts to have a new nuclear deal or to kind of, you know, see if it's viable to bring back the old one or maybe, you know, update it in line with current geopolitical realities. And if this works, if this is properly implemented, um, that this will create the grounds which are necessary. Like we're not out of the woods by any stretch. Like the U.S. and Iran are still in a in a very very kind of hostile relationship, and we need much more serious diplomacy. And so, yeah. So the hope is that this could open the door to de-escalation and eventual broader diplomacy that could really put the lid on Iran's nuclear program. Thank you for coming on the show, Sina. It's an honor to have you here. Um, I note that on the 13th, uh, which will be a day before this podcast broadcast, uh, is the year anniversary of the death of Masa Amini, the young 22-year-old woman who died in custody after she was arrested for not wearing her hijab, and the massive street protest that ensued uh, throughout the last year. Uh, many young people, um, dozens of cities involved, uh, reminded the rest of the world of the repressive government that is the Iranian regime, um, and but also of the issues that are implicit in the in on the domestic front and how they can only be changed uh, from an organic groundswell of protests and demonstrations at home. Often we are told by you know, hawks right here in this country that somehow the United States needs to um, involve itself in spurring regime change or changes in the political um, situation there from the outside. And we, as we all know on this call, that hasn't worked. But can you talk a little bit about whether you think that the demonstrations did have a positive impact. Do you see any significant uh, political changes or societal changes coming out of those demonstrations that could be seen as a positive uh, outgrowth of her tragic death? Sure. Um, 
I would first start by saying that, you know, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the current Iranian government, uh, it's a very repressive uh, theocracy. And there's no doubt about that. And, you know, the tragic death of Mahsa Amini that, as you explained, ignited this massive protest movement. That was also a reflection of years and years of pent up grievances and anger among, you know, many, many, many Iranians uh, at the political and social and economic status quo in their country. And, you know, Iranians have been struggling for representative democratic governance for decades and over a century, you know, going back to the constitutional revolution that happened in Iran in the early 1900s, when Iran had a, for several years, had a parliament and a very democratic constitution way ahead of other countries in the Middle East, many countries in Europe. It was So the history of these kind of movements in Iran is very fascinating. Um, but in terms of, I would, I would also first say that, you know, what does this mean for America's policy towards Iran? So, you know, the Islamic Republic is a repressive government. It, it you know, oppresses its own people. It violently cracked down on this protest movement. So what does that mean? Like America then, you know, many hawks will say should not diplomatically engage with this government. If they're, if they're you know, they have this nuclear program, we shouldn't pursue diplomacy to, to kind of, uh, uh, put a, you know, stop to this nuclear program. And we should support regime change or support, you know, the people in Iran who are struggling for, Freedom, but you know this has many issues. Uh, most of all, which is that you know America itself has been a, bit, a source of harm for Iran's civil society, Iran's democracy movement, and we see that these sanctions have really amounted to collective punishments. You know, a lot of empirical data about how the middle class has massively shrunk since 2018. That civil society has been weakened. That the most repressive, hardline elements of this government have come to the fore and consolidated power. And in many ways, America has played into the hands of, you know, the hardliners in Iran. And, you know, ultimately, when it comes to diplomacy, you know, we engage with diplomacy. We have diplomatic relations. Even our allies are repressive states, you know, whether it be, you know, China, Saudi Arabia, you know, many, many countries that we have, you know, they might be our allies. We engage in diplomacy with them. Like, a state being repressive, I don't think, goes against this tool of diplomacy, which should be weighed against the tool of, you know, aggressive measures, conflict, war, kind of sitting at a table and trying to get concessions and give certain concessions. Um, but I think ultimately, when it comes to the protest movements in Iran, you know, Iranians, the Iranian people are best equipped to bring positive change for their country. America has a terrible track record in bringing positive change for the people of the Middle East. You know, America has supported a range of brutal dictators for decades in the region. Its security architecture in the region is really underpinned by very brutal regimes. Obviously, Israel is one of America's closest allies in the region, and that is, you know, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the UN. They all say, you know, apartheid regime, very kind of, uh, these are all kind of, you know, ugly, repressive regimes. But does that mean America shouldn't deal with them or should, it shouldn't try to kind of uh, do what it can? You know, I think there's a better U.S. policy that could meet national security interests and also help the people without doing harm. You know, and I think diplomacy is a part of that. Uh, but with respect to the Massa Amini protests, have they brought positive change to Iran? I mean, sadly, you know, it's hard to say that, that, you know, that has not been the case. You know, the Islamic Republic has been really uh, 
avoid uh, has been very kind of impossible to have to reform for you know the supreme leader Khamenei has long opposed a reformist agenda whether on social issues or on foreign policy that the new president who came into power in 2021 is you know totally aligned with Khamenei and they view certain things like the mandatory hijab uh, a lot of these social restrictions and a lot of the kind of political uh, environment in Iran that they don't want to open this stuff up. They don't want to concede on any of these things that they view. If they concede on these things, it's a slippery slope and, you know, it just shows how insecure they are. But ultimately, it's unsustainable. I think their project in Iran is very unsustainable in the in the in the face of this, you know, vibrant, youthful population that wants better relations with the world, wants better freedoms. And so the Iranian people are best equipped to bring that change. In the past year, we have seen a lot, you know, more political organizing, more, you know, civic engagement, civil society engagement. A lot of these political prisoners in Iran, activists in Iran are putting out charter statements, listing their demands, organizing. Um, the government has had no choice but to, you know, on mandatory hijab, many women uh, continue to go in public spaces without any kind of, you know, forced covering and, you know, the government is trying to push back on that. But again, these are the, 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 you know, I think the push, it's a fight within Iran's and the best way the tangible positive change can come to Iran is through organic change, grassroots led change. And the Iranian people are best equipped to bring that. And I really think that it's unsustainable what the Islamic Republic is doing. And actually, U.S. policies have helped this regime in many, many ways, you know, including by propping up the hardliners, maintaining this war footing that has benefited the government, and then opening up, I think, what actually more, uh, and you know, enable Iranian civil society and activists to kind of make more gains in their country. I know we only got like a minute left, but I wanted to ask you, say that it's unsustainable. And I've heard that for many years. Do you, what, what do you think is going to mark the, a real shift? Will it be the death of Ayatollah Khomeini? Um, does, or is he already establishing heirs and cementing their power so that when he passes, that there will be an entrenched uh, elite that will keep on um, the, the current trajectory? Where do you, at what point do you see a fracture in the current system so that a new yeah. generation might be able to take over and um, move in a different direction. Sure. Yeah. I think this, you know, what I like this term unsustainable, like to break it down. I don't think, you know, many people think like, you know, the Islamic Republic is going to collapse tomorrow and it's going to be like, you know, some, the Shah is coming back, you know, or, you know, some pro-American order is going to take over. No, I don't, you know, that's very simplistic and, that's, you know, I don't think things are headed in that direction. But this current political and social status quo in Iran, these kind of rigid confines that the Islamic Republic has imposed on the population, various political structures, I think as, you know, we get further from 1979, further from the generations of men who kind of created that political system, fought in the Iran-Iraq war, have headed this government, as they get older, as they pass away, as younger people come in and this secession to Khamenei, who's in his mid-80s, is a huge decisive factor as well, like you said, that coupled with the, you know, public anger, the kind of widespread dissatisfaction, that something's got to give, you know, it, and 
whether it be, you know, concessions on, you know, social rights, political rights, opening up the the kind of uh, a lot of these kind of enclosed repressive spaces in Iran. If something's going to give in the Islamic Republic as it is its form of governance right now is unsustainable, I would say, in that way. Well, we, we certainly hope to see a day when Iran is a, a freer and a more prosperous country, and we should be working as, as we have been working to make U.S. policies that help to bring that about. And I think we, we all agree that stepping away from the coercive policies uh, that are still in place uh, is, is the first step towards doing that. Uh, I want to thank you again, Sina Tusi, for coming on. Uh, thanks so much for being on the show, and we look forward to talk, talking to you again. Thank you for having me. Really enjoyed this. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.